Today we're continuing in our Summer in the Psalms series where we're looking at one psalm a week, uh, going through 13 of the 150 psalms that are included in our Bibles. Now, some of you probably noticed when Austin just read the psalm, he, he read two of them, right? 42 and 43. And the reason for that is because we're, we're going to be looking at these together because they are so closely related. I don't know if you picked up on it when he was reading, but they truly are very similar and if not the same. A lot of scholars believe that it is actually just one psalm that got split into two over time, and a lot of the ancient manuscripts have it together as one psalm. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to treat it as one psalm. And that's going to be how we move forward. But before we get into the psalm uh, in particular, I want to take you through a little bit of an introduction to it. If you've got your Bibles open to Psalm 42, you're going to see that at the very top, there's a little header right underneath where it says Psalm 42. It says, this for the director of music, a mascal of the sons of Korah. And, of course, that gets me to have two questions here. The heck is a mascal? And who are the sons of Korah? Well, maskel is, it's a Hebrew word. It's one that appears in the introduction or the superscription, that, that kind of thing, for 13 of the different psalms. And it actually appears inside Psalm 47.7. It is a word that is used in Psalm 47.7, uh, where it gets translated as psalm. So that's helpful. Um, according to Lexham Bible Dictionary, the term maskel most likely comes from the word skull, S-K-L, in Hebrew, which means to have insight or to be skillful. I don't think it's where we get our word skill, but it sounds good, if that's right. But Anyway, the sons of Korah, they are a group who are believed to have been descended from Korah, who is a Levite. And he, if you remember from uh, the book of Exodus, I believe, Maybe it was Leviticus, I don't know, but um, could be numbers as well. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere. Somewhere, in the, somewhere in the first five books. Uh, <laughs> but not Genesis, I know that. <laughs> anyway, he's a Levite, and he opposed Moses as Moses was leading them as they were wandering through the wilderness, right? And so he's opposing Moses, and Moses is like, okay, well, look, in the morning... Come and God will choose between us. And God did choose, and uh, he, he chose Moses to lead his people, as he had already done. And then he opened up the ground below those who opposed Moses, and it swallowed them up. And that is definitely one of the stranger stories in Scripture. Um, but it's this guy's descendants who is credited for writing this psalm, and 11 other psalms as well. And they also held the responsibility for guarding the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent in which the Israelites worshipped and where God dwelt among them. So, a little bit of background there. We get that out of the way. So now we can get into the psalm proper. This is a psalm of lament. We talked about this a little bit last week when we were reading in Psalm 27. We saw that David was writing with both confidence, but also, you know, he had some lament in the second half of it. And this week we're going to see this psalm really, like, it focuses on how we can feel when God feels absolutely distant from us. 
It's truly a longing for God's presence. And so we're going to start with a focus on thirst. In ancient Greek mythology, there's a character who appeared in Homer's Odyssey named Tantalus. Tantalus was seen when Odysseus travels to Hades, and he was being punished in the underworld for a few crimes. Here are a few of those. Um, let's see, he killed his... Uh, well, let me start with this one first. Uh, some of them, some, some of the crimes were that he, he revealed heavenly secrets to the mortals. He killed his son and then served him to the gods as food to see if they were observant at all. And then he stole the food from the, of the gods and then gave it to mortals. And his punishment in Hades was that of never-ending thirst. He was constantly thirsty. When Odysseus saw him, he had water up to his chin. Anytime he would try and drink from that water... It would, it would go away from him. There was fruit and low-hanging branches right above him. Anytime he would reach for that fruit, the wind would pick up and it would blow it away. And he was eternally thirsty. I think that would be a pretty bad punishment, personally. Of course, this is making me thirsty and my water's way back there, but that's all right. I'll make it through. So let's start by reading the first two verses of the psalm. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2 says... As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? So we start by seeing the longing that we have for God's presence being represented by this idea of thirst. The author uses a simile of a deer who's panting for streams of water. Now, it's not just like, you know, I'm thirsty let me get a drink of water kind of thing. It is, it's like you're parched. You think about it like a drought. You absolutely need water to survive. That's what, that's what they're saying here. It's not just refreshment, but it is a need. And so like a deer that is panting for water, that needs water beyond anything else, so my soul pants for you, Lord, my God. And he repeats this as well in verse 2. He says, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? So what does this tell us? Well, this is somebody who knows who God is, right? But he feels separated from him. It feels to him like he's in a drought away from the Lord. God is so important to him that in his life, and that he's just desperately seeking to fill that, the void that's been caused by God's seeming absence here. Again, we spoke about this a little bit last week, but one of the things that we do when we feel this emptiness, when we feel that, that God is distant from us and, and we have that drought, we try to fill it ourselves, right? We, you know, we, last week we talked about filling all the time in our day. We schedule ourselves to death, be it through work or entertainment or social media, news, whatever. We just try and fill our time with something because we know that something's missing. And so we're trying to fill that. We fill our schedules to the brim and then we try to figure out, why am I so tired? But we do this with other things, too. Somebody once said that you can't get enough of what you really don't want. You can't get enough of what you really don't want. So you're trying to fill your life with stuff. 
toys, relationships, work, cars, vacations, food, books, recreation, church. But you're never satisfied with it, ever. You can never have enough of it. And that drives you for more. It drives you to get more. Even if it's just a little bit, we just are never satisfied. And ultimately, what should we truly want? We should want God, a relationship with God. What's going to fill the emptiness in our lives? What's going to give us actual satisfaction? It's the Lord. As one commentator writes, when we have God, we find true joy and satisfaction in all the other good stuff in life. It's about being with the Lord. And that's what the writer is talking about here. He's like, my soul thirsts for God. My, that, uh, it's only going to be satisfied by God, that thirst. Where can I go and meet with God? Where, where can I go and be in his presence? That's the real question. Like, where can I be where I'm just with you, Lord? That's what he's wrestling with here because it, it seems like God's not there. Not, he's, he's not in the Lord's presence right now. It's what it seems like. He continues in Psalm 42, verse 3. He says, My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? I'm sure there have been plenty of us in this room who have experienced something like this. You've known those times of sorrow where not a whole lot seems to help you. You don't feel like God is near you. And then to put a cap on it, the author has these people who are probably know of a relationship, his relationship with God, and they see him struggling. And so they ask him the question, you know, and kind of mockingly, right? Well, where's your God? Obviously, he's not here. If your God's so great, Why are you even going through this? Where is he? He doesn't answer that here specifically, but he continues in verse 4 where he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. How easy is it for us to look back on things in our lives and remember how they were and, and makes us feel things, right? You know, nostalgia. You know, um, might remember something from high school that was good or somewhere that you lived in the past. Like for me, it was when we lived up at my grandpa's house in Indianapolis. Um, during the summers, we would, we would be on the front porch and we would screen it in and everything. And, and almost every night, we would just be out on the front porch and just spend time together. Neighbors would come around, and, and we'd be out there until it got dark, and fireflies would start to come out. It was awesome. I loved that. But we don't really have anything like that anymore, at least for us. But, but that makes me feel nostalgic, right? doesn't make me feel sad or depressed or anything like that, but sometimes those memories can make you feel that way can't make you feel sad because you remember what it was like before. And I think that's what's happening to the writer of the psalm. Because he's remembering how he used to go to the house of the Lord, most likely in the temple in Jerusalem. 
And, and he went under the protection of God himself, and there were shouts of joy and praise from everybody. Now, I know I've said it before, but there's something about it when all of God's people are singing praises to God. You guys were awesome this morning. It sounded beautiful. And, and it was... It was you too, Casey. <laughs> but just hearing everybody singing, like there is something powerful about that. Absolutely powerful. And, and it seems like that's what the writer had. And, and he's missing that now. And he deeply misses it. It's not just a little thing, but he's deeply missing that. And he wants it again to be around the people of God. And not just that, but to be around God himself. Worshiping the Lord with others. And so he longs for God. His soul thirsts for God. And then in verse 5, there's this refrain. This is going to be repeated three times in the two Psalms that we're looking at. And it ends each section of the Psalms. It says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Here's he's having a little bit of a conversation with himself. He's questioning his emotional state. Why, why are you downcast? Why are you depressed? Why are you so disturbed? As one commentator wrote, it's an important dialogue between two aspects of the believer who is at once a man of convictions and a creature of change. He's called to live in eternity. His mind stayed on God, but also in time where mind and body are under pressures that cannot and should not leave him impassive. There are pressures. There are things that this life has put on him. But he continues to call himself out of that, urging himself to hope, saying, put your hope in God. I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It doesn't seem like his distress was avoidable, but he could endure it because it didn't shake his faith. And it doesn't have to shake our faith. And we'll talk a little bit about that, a little bit more about that in a second. But for now, let's move on to the second section where the psalm looks to the longing for God's presence among the depths. Verse 6, my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Now, Israel's not that big of a country, really. It's 8,000 square feet. I did some research this week. Just to give you, uh, or square feet. <laughs> that would be the tiniest country. <laughs> square miles, 8,000 square miles. So the closest to that would be the state of Massachusetts, if you're thinking state-wise. It's 7,800 square miles. The farthest point north comes to a mountain range, and that's where Mount Hermon is at. Mount Hermon stands 9,230 feet high. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River. But it stands a long way from Jerusalem. It's a long way from the temple of God. And continuing from verse 5, his soul is downcast, so what does he do? He recalls his experience, experience of worshiping God. He'll remember the Lord, even if he feels like he's in that mountain range where Mount Hermon stands so far from where the Lord resides in his temple. But this leads to the next part of the verse where things get, are getting a little bit more difficult. 
In the first part, the writer likened the longing to a deer who was thirsty, who had no water, right? But now there is water, and it's dangerous water. Verse 7 says, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Probably been near waterfalls, right? And they can get loud um, with that much water going over the rocks and everything. It's wild. But then we get a picture of the author. Feels like he's lost his footing. And he's got the waves sweeping over him and just crashing down on him. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? Where you're trying to get your footing, but the waves keep coming, keep pushing you back, keep pushing you, knocking you over, sweeping you out, sweeping your feet out from under you, forcing you under. And I think that can be, a, that's a really good picture of somebody who is struggling with discouragement in their lives. Because it just feels like life just keeps coming at you, right? Like you're trying to stand firm, but it's just knocking you over. Trying to force you under. And all we can do is cry out to the Lord for help. It's like the first part of Psalm 69, verses 1 through 3. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. Psalm 42.7 also might remind you of the prayer of Jonah when he was in the belly of the great fish. He uses a lot of similar language in that prayer which seems to have been drawn from numerous psalms, like we looked at a a month or so ago. Jonah 2, verse 3 says, You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Jonah's cry for help, his prayer, the psalmist's prayer, they're the same. For the Lord to rescue them from the depths, from the waters which are keeping them down. When we're in the depths, it can feel like the Lord is not near us. It doesn't seem like he hears our prayers, and yet he is there. He's available to us. So let's, let's read about the Lord's love in verse 8. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. All hope is not lost for the psalmist or for us. He knows that the Lord is with him. While he might raise questions about God, he knows that, that the Lord is still directing his love toward him. The Hebrew word for love, it's a word called hesed. The word's translated love 142 times in the Old Testament. And it means a faithful love, a covenant love, and loyalty. Psalm 136 uses this word throughout, and it's, you, you would know the song, I think. You know, his, his, his love endures forever. His faithful love endures forever. Like, give praise to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Like, it's just repeated over and over. It's like, there's a line, his love endures forever. The word for directs here is also the word that means pours and it's something that happens continuously, just over and over. So the Lord continuously pours out his faithful love, his covenant love. He doesn't stop. 
This leads the psalmist to sing his praises and to keep praying to the Lord even in the midst of the darkness which he's walking. And we see this continuing in verses 9 and 10 where he writes, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where's your God? So we're kind of brought to the initial, uh, the reason for the initial statement in verse 6, that his soul is downcast. Why? Because he doesn't know where God is. He calls God his rock, but he also asks, why has the Lord forgotten him? Why does he have to mourn? Why is the enemy seemingly winning? The absence of the Lord hurts him. I mean, he's talking about his bones suffering mortal agony. And like in verse 3, his enemies are taunting him again, asking, where is your God? And then we have the refrain again, which follows in verse 11. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And again, his soul is downcast because he feels like God's not with him. But he still tells himself, put your hope in the Lord. Praise him, Savior, Savior and God. So we continue to Psalm 43, and we'll close things out uh, with this song from the Songs of Korah. That closes it out. Um, in, in this part, we're going to see that there's still hope for this psalmist. 43.1, Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. Two things he asks in this verse. First, he asks God to vindicate him and to plead his case against an unfaithful nation. To vindicate is to clear somebody from blame or suspicion. His enemies keep asking him, where's your God? His response is like, God, show yourself to them. That'd be a wonderful vindication. One commentator wrote about this line. He says, down deep inside, the psalmist knows that in their repeated question, where is this God of yours? It's got an implied answer. He's nowhere to be found. But they're liars. On one level, he knows that God is there as his only safe haven. But on another level, he has no sense of the presence of God, feeling as if he's been tossed aside to walk in the darkness. That's the first thing. He asks God to vindicate him. And then he asked God to rescue him from the deceitful and the wicked. That's truly how this writer will be vindicated, is if the Lord rescues him and brings him back to the house of God. And he continues with his prayer in verse 2. He says, you, God, are my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. God is his stronghold. It's the only protection that he has. Talked about strongholds last week. It's like a fortress with high walls up in an elevated position for protection, right? That's where you're going to feel most protected is when you are with the Lord. 
And now he feels like he's outside that protection because he feels like God is, is far from him, right? Because he's asking the question, why have you rejected me? Why am I oppressed by the enemy? And it's the same thing from verse 9 of Psalm 42. But rather than repeating the accusations from others here, you know, the where is your God question that he's, he mentioned twice already, the writer then asks God to send his light and his care and to be led by them back to the holy mountain where God dwells. He wants that protection more than anything. But, well, maybe not more than anything because he wants to be in the presence of the Lord probably most. And what's he going to do when he gets in the Lord's presence? He's going to worship him. Verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. That should be what we all want. To be with the Lord, to know the joy and the delight that he brings. And to worship him, to praise him. You see, the psalmist feels disconnected at that moment, but he doesn't let it shake his faith. All throughout, you see the questions that he asks. You see the distance that he feels. You know, why have you rejected me? Your waves and your breakers have swept over me. Why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning? Why am I downcast? But yet he keeps hoping in the Lord. And my soul pants for you. Being under the protection of the Mighty One, I will remember you. The Lord directs his love. His song is with me. You are God, my stronghold. And that takes us to the last verse, and it's the refrain one more time. Verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. The psalmist's goal was to return to the Lord's temple so that he might worship him there. But there's a problem with that now. Because as one commentator writes, the temple was only a shadow. It wasn't reality itself. But we can enter into reality by the blood of Jesus, as Hebrews 10.19 says. The temple was in one location in Jerusalem. But through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit who fills us, like Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6.16, then we become the temple of the living God. So we don't have to be in some special place in Jerusalem because there's no temple there right now. There's a wall, but there's no temple. It was destroyed in 70 AD and has not been rebuilt. But we don't need that place anymore because the Lord is with us always. We can be anywhere. We started by talking about the deer panting for water, like in a drought, right? Needing water above everything else. In the fourth chapter of John's gospel, Jesus and his disciples are traveling to a Samaritan town. And Jesus stops to rest at a well while the rest of the group goes into town to get some food. It's about noon, and a woman comes up to draw some water from the well. Not the normal time when you would do it, but there's a reason for it. And Jesus strikes up a conversation, as he does. Just asks her for a drink. 
And the woman who's a Samaritan is like, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Like, we're not even supposed to be talking right now. How can you ask me for a drink? And here's Jesus' response in verse 10 of chapter 4. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then she's basically like, what are you even talking about? And Jesus responds in verse 13. He answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. The water from the well. But whoever drinks the water I'll give them. Never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then we skip down a little bit to verse 23. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, well, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Sometimes we're going to be in a rut. Sometimes we're going to feel like God is far away from us. We can go through difficult times, times where it feels like the water is just crushing you, keeping you down. We're going to have those tough moments, and, and following Jesus does not erase those from your life. But like the psalmist says in Psalm 42 and 43, we can keep our hope that the Lord will hear us, will answer our prayers, that he is with us. And we can have hope that we can be with him for eternity because of Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. As Jesus says in John 7, verses 37 and 38, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Because of Jesus, even if our souls are downcast, even if our souls are disturbed, we can put our hope and our praise in him because he is our Savior and our God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that there are people in this room who have had that feeling, like this author of the psalm, that it feels like you are so far away that they, they thirst for you, Lord. They are parched for you, Lord. And Father, we... We just want to give them hope, Lord, that you, uh, you're still there. You're always there with us as we follow you and as, as you lead us, you hear our prayers. And so we can have that hope. We keep our hope in you, Lord, because of your son, Jesus, who died on a cross for us came to live as human for us 
So we don't have to fear. Like the song says, not a slave to fear because I am your child, Lord. We're going to go through rough patches, but that's also why we come here to to remind ourselves, but it's also to be around other people who believe the same things that we do, who know you and can come around alongside each other to lift each other up. That's who we are as a church. Not just at Maple Grove, but as a global church. They know us because of our love for each other. So let us be your love, Lord. Let us, because you have filled us and continually fill us, let us overflow with that. Father, we come to the point in our service now where we take the the cup and the bread to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And I pray that each of us would just take that time right now just to confess any sins we might have to just recommit should we need it. Or maybe right now is the time where we need to commit our lives to you fully. And so, Lord, we just ask for your blessing over this time. And we just thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.